Well, this morning we are continuing in Mark chapter 14, and as I read the passage this week, I knew that um, it was going to contain um, the Lord's Supper and His reinterpretation of that. And so I thought, um, hey, this is going to be a lot about the Lord's Supper. We're going to see some really interesting and amazing things that happen in that, um, that um, Jesus stops at the third cup of the Passover meal and not the fourth cup, the fourth cup being consummation and vindication, meaning we're still waiting for that to come, um, or that the fact that, I'm not sure about this one, but there were some people that said there's no lamb in this story, um, and usually there's a lamb that's eaten with Passover, and so Jesus is kind of symbolically saying, hey, I am the lamb because we didn't have one, I will be sacrificed. Um, but as I read it, yes, those things are there. Um, but I began to notice that there's a lot of predictions, actually, in this passage. Um, if you're looking, I can easily get nine out of 20, nine in 20 verses. So essentially, every other verse is Jesus telling us something that is going to happen in the future. And so that's really the direction that we're going to take this morning is, what does it mean that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen before it was going to happen? And that God knows what's going to happen in our lives, right? That there is some control um, by God sovereignly over creation and even over what we do and where we are headed. Um, and so that's what we're looking at this morning. It's not necessarily the easiest topic to work through, and I, we only get a limited amount of time. So just know what we're talking about in this subject matter of, of divine sovereignty and human responsibility um, is how you would talk about it theologically. Um, it's about a mile deep. Um, and this morning, we're going to go about two inches. Um, so just know we're just doing surface level. There's much more in this um, that we could learn or that we could talk about. Um, but that's what we're looking at is that topic. And we're going to look at what does it mean, right? What, how do we live in response to that, right? Um, if God have, has it under control, nothing stops his plan, um, what does that mean for us? How do we live in the midst of that? And so we're going to see that in Mark um, chapter 14, verses 12 through 31. So let's read that together. Um, it's page 902, um, if you're following along in the Pew Bible. Um, so here we go. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? And he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, till the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. And so the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, he arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born." And as they were eating, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. 
And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. And so we see lots of things happening here in this passage. Um, But first, I want us to see that God knows our fate. He knows what's going to happen. And we're going to see that in two ways, um, one through Jesus and one through the Scriptures. So let's take a look first at that Jesus knew what would happen. I mean, we're going to jump around a little bit, but it's all right there, so you just follow along. So we see this first in verse 13, right? Jesus says, go and find a man carrying a jar of water, um, and he will show you um, where and where to take the Passover, and everything will be ready for you. Now, you may think, oh, finding a guy carrying a jar of water um, in Austin, that's like finding somebody drinking coffee, right? It happens everywhere, no matter where you go, there's always somebody drinking coffee from somewhere, right? But that's not necessarily the case, right? That would be an easy prediction, just find a guy carrying water. Um, What you don't know is that um, men did not carry jars of water, they carried wineskins. And so only women carried jars of water, so finding a man carrying a jar of water would have been an unusual sight, that you didn't see all of the time. And so this thing would be striking. You would be able to see it. You would notice that, hey, this is the guy carrying the jar of water because he's the only one um, that we see. And we see later in verse 16, right? It says, it happened just as he had told them. They went, they found the guy, he was ready. They had preparations and so they did that, right? And so on this one, I'll give you a little bit of wiggle room because it is actually possible that Jesus didn't just know what would happen and knew that this guy was going to have a jar of water and that he was going to be ready. So there is a possibility on this one that Jesus did actually make arrangements with this guy ahead of time, so that's how he knew this. So I'm not saying he necessarily told the future. He may have arranged this one, but still, he knew what was going to happen. He knew that he needed to be prepared. Um, And so next, we actually have the scene at the Lord's Supper. Um, And in the scene of the Lord's Supper that begins in verse 17 and ends at verse 25, um, both of those end with, begin in both of those verses, there's a truly I tell you statement, right? And we've talked about these before when we run into them. This is Jesus saying something important. And so in this, um, we see those two, and then later we'll see another one with Peter. And in all three of these statements, Jesus is revealing that he knows what is going to happen. Um, The first one in verse 17, he says, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, right? Somebody in the room is going to betray him. Um, It's short term. It would happen in the next several hours. This is Thursday evening. Jesus dies on a Friday, resurrection is on a Sunday. So we are getting close. So this betrayal is very near. And when they start kind of asking and saying, well, it's not going to be me, it's not going to be me, he even clarifies that even more in verse 20, saying it will be one of the 12, right? Not just anybody who's been following, but one of the 12 will actually 
um, betray him. And so again, we have pretty specific knowledge from Jesus about what is about to happen. And then we have the conversation at the end with Peter, right? Peter tells him um, about this betrayal, like, even if everybody falls away, even if I have to die, I won't do it. I won't deny you. I won't fall away. And he's pretty adamant that he's not going to be the one. And Jesus then gets even more specific about this, just yes, the betrayal, but about what's going to happen in general with the disciples. And he says, truly, I tell you, today, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Jesus knew exactly what Peter was going to do. He was going to deny him three times. And when he did that, a rooster would crow twice. So that's not just knowing what Peter was going to do, but also the events in the world, including a rooster, um, what would happen around that time as well. That's pretty specific knowledge about what's going to happen, right? I don't know that, I don't know, can you train a rooster to make noise at a certain time? I don't know if you can do that, but that seems like a lot of work um, to make this happen, right? You have to train him to listen. Anyway, that's too far down the well, but... I think it's pretty likely that Jesus knew what was going to happen. And then verse 25, Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and so we have Jesus saying, basically, I'm not going to drink wine until I am in the kingdom with the Father. It shows that he knows his time for his death is near. It is really near. It is coming. So, like I said, this is Thursday evening, so in less than 24 hours, Jesus will be crucified. And then we have Jesus' words during the Lord's Supper, right? We talked about this last week of what this means. It's a reinterpretation of this tradition they have been following for hundreds of years um, about what is happening, and we'll do a little bit more about this later. But when he took the bread, he blessed it. <clears throat> he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body, right? This is my body. It is his body that would be broken, that would be their deliverance and redemption, <clears throat> And then he said, this is the blood of my covenant, <clears throat> which is poured out for many. Now, we could do a whole sermon, I think, just on the blood of the covenant and what it means. Because this covenant is being, any covenant with God is ratified by blood. And we see that in Exodus, when they sacrifice the lamb and they put it on the doorpost <clears throat> and he saves them. So just like it was ratified with the blood of the Lamb in Exodus, it will be ratified by Jesus and his blood in this new covenant that we connect to Jeremiah 31, that he will have a new covenant and he will write the law on their hearts. <clears throat> but for what we're looking at, we can tell by Jesus' words that he knew he was about to die. He knew that his body would be broken and that his blood would be spilled. And so next, we're going to look at the places that he references in Scripture that talk about, hey, this is written down way, way, way ahead of time. So it's not just Jesus in the moment knowing what's going to happen in the next 24 hours or so, um, but even more than that, of hundreds of years that would accurately predict what would happen. And so we see this referenced in verse 21, right? The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, right? Basically saying he will go to his death. If you want to look up Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, both of those talk about, actually in very descriptive detail, about what would actually happen to Jesus. And their prophecies about what would happen. Right? That the suffering servant would die for his people. He would die for the sins of the people. That he would be abandoned. That he would be crushed. That he would have his clothes divided up. 
that he would suffer an unjust trial and that he would be killed even though he was innocent. All of those things we see in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And then we see in verse 27, right? All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a verse from Zechariah 13, verse 7. that says they'll all fall away. And this isn't necessarily um, abandonment or denial like we see in with Peter, um, but it's more in line with like, hey, there's a violence going on right here and the people just take off running to get away from it, um, which is exactly what we see when Jesus is erected, er, arrested. And so these are just two of the many prophecies and predictions that talk about what would happen when Jesus comes. So we can see clearly from these verses that God knows our fate. He knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. But what do we do with that? Right? What does that matter to us? If all these things are known in advance, even what's going to happen to us and what our lives will be, does it make any difference? Does that mean we can just do whatever we want and there's no consequences? Right? Because God knew that's what would happen? Or does it mean... Lots of other things that we're going to talk about as we work through. So how do we do that if we believe that God knows what's going to happen? So let's answer some of these questions. And first, um, we're going to talk about the one that, are there consequences for my actions, even though everything seems to be known or maybe even predetermined? And we see this in verse 21, um, the the second half, when it talks about um, his betrayal, which we know will be Judas. It says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And so Jesus will go just as he said he would to be killed, just as this is written. This is part of God's divine plan for the redemption of mankind. And he would use one of the disciples, Judas, as part of that plan. But Judas would also bear the responsibility for his actions in that betrayal because of what he does, right? It would have been better for him if he wouldn't have been born. That's a serious um, penalty or suffering because of that. So just because God knows what's going to happen doesn't cancel the consequences, Right. This verse is actually one of many scriptures that simultaneously affirm God's sovereign order and knowing what's going to happen, and human responsibility for what's happening in those events. Um, One of them is from Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, when he gets back and his brothers know who he is, um, and they're a little bit afraid, right, that Joseph will actually um, seek revenge on them because of what they did to him. They, if you're not familiar, they sold him into slavery. Um, Then they, lots of other things. They could have gone back and rescued him sooner, but they didn't. They took their time coming back to get more food. Um, They didn't want to take their other brother and give him, anyway, there's a whole lot of things that happened to Joseph because of his brothers. And so at the end, they're scared of him, like he's going to get revenge on us. And what he tells them is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? That what you did something, yes, you did something terrible to me. But in the midst of that, God used what you did to bring about something good. He knew what was going to happen. And even though it was terrible in the moment, he knew that something good would come out of it. So God was in control of that. And then in Acts chapter 2, it talks about really Jesus being delivered and says, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. That even though... 
it was written what Jesus would do, that he would be killed, that, he would, that God used these lawless people, people that don't follow him, people that were opposed to him, to do this process. And all of those people, just like all of us technically, are judged because of our actions towards Christ and how we respond to him or don't respond to him or ignore him or follow him. Right? That we're not off the hook just because God knows what's going to happen. So, even if God knows what's ahead, and that doesn't eliminate the consequences, um, it doesn't necessarily mean, because the one that gets twisted up into this whole conversation is the idea of free will. Well, if God already knows what's going to happen, and I can't really change it because what God, God has seen or planned will happen, and we can't thwart, then do I really have free will? Which is a whole other thing. We're just barely even touching that one today. Well, I'm going to say it means that you are free to choose, um, which means God doesn't necessarily make you choose what to do. But then what happens? How do those two things fit together? And I think we actually see that in Peter, right? Peter denies that he will deny Jesus, right? I'm not going to do it. Even if I have to die, I'm not going to deny Jesus. Right? But Jesus knew that he would. He would deny Jesus in that moment. And so what's happening here isn't that Jesus caused Peter to deny him, but Jesus actually, I think, had a deeper understanding of Peter than Peter did of himself. Right? Peter was free to support Jesus, to say, yes, I was with him. I'm one of his followers. Just put my cross right next to his. I'm willing to die. That's not what Peter does. Peter denies. Because Peter, in that moment, made his choice in line with his motives and his desires and the strength of his faith. Right? And Jesus knew Peter so intimately that Jesus knew that's what Peter would do in the moment, even though Peter himself didn't know it yet. Right? Jesus knew Peter more deeply than Peter knew himself. And the same is true for us. Right? Jesus knows more about us than we do. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our struggles. He knows our temptations. He knows where you're going to be next week. He knows where you're going to be next year. Right? But he also knows right, your desires, your motives, your temptations, the strength of your faith. And because he knows that, that's how he knows what's going to happen. And so it doesn't mean he causes you to do that, but that he knows you so well that he knows what you're going to choose in that moment. Now, that's like two sentences in something you could take like three semesters in seminary to discuss. So, but I, I think the important thing for us is Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Right? And just... One of the things I came back to over and over again is just how this, what we're talking about this morning actually impacts the way we pray, right? Because if Jesus knows me better than I know myself, then who better to ask questions to? Who better to ask for guidance? Who better to ask for help? Who better to confess to, to ask, hey, is there any sin in me? Is there anything I need to do differently, right? Than somebody who knows us better than we know ourselves, right? It's like, I don't know, it sound, feels a little bit like getting the answers to the test, right? He knows what's coming, he knows the answers, and if we just ask him, he'll actually tell us, right, what they are. So I think this actually has, is an important way that we think about the way that we pray. 
And so we do that. But I know this is a, a complicated concept and we're just scratching the surface. But I think it's important for us to understand, especially one of the most important ways to understand this is when it comes to salvation. Right? We have the verses, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. We talk about faith being a gift. It cannot be earned. God gives us the faith. He opens our eyes. He changes our desires to want to follow him. And we know this at some level because it shows up when we actually pray for people that are not yet believers. What are the things we pray for? Right? God, open their eyes. Help them to see who they, you really are. Help them to trust in you, to give their life over to you. So at some level, we know that God is involved in changing them. To open their eyes, to see who he is. And so we know that God is involved, and I think in this it's important to remember that we are saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves, but it is a gift given to us by God so that no one can boast. We don't do it. It is given to us. He gives it to us. God does the saving, not us. So we can boldly ask God to do his thing and bring people to know him. Right, because he can do that, and he alone can do that. But even after salvation, God is with us, and he works in our lives. Yes, he knows where we're headed. Yes, he knows us better than we know ourselves. But I actually think that's, I'm going to talk, where we're going next, I actually think that's really encouraging for us. Um, I know we don't always think that way because I don't, I like to be in control. Right? I like to think I know where I'm going and I'm making my own decisions and I'm plowing my own path and I'm doing all of these things on my own. Um, but this kind of makes it sound like I'm not really in control and that's hard for me to understand sometimes. It's hard for me to deal with. But I think understanding that God knows where we're headed and that he has sovereign control and his plans are never thwarted, that's actually good for us. So that's what we're going to do next. We're going to look at how God's sovereignty over our lives, over all things, is actually encouraging for our faith and that it should give us confidence um, because, I'm going to use two words, God's sovereign rule is both universal and a big word, uh, efficacious, right? Universal meaning there is nothing outside of God's control, right? What's happening in the world right now is not outside of God's control. What's happening in your life is not outside of God's control. What's happening in history is not outside of God's control. What's happening in a pandemic, um, in protests, in government, in world events, all of those things are under God's control. Everything, universal. Everything in the universe is under his control. The second word is efficacious. Um, that's your SAT word for the day, I guess. Um, efficacious means it's effective, it happens. So everything that is under God's control and that fits in his plan always happens. Nothing happens differently than the way that God planned it to happen. Always comes through, right? We talk about this sort of as we reference, right? God is in control. He, he, he is with us. His plans are never thwarted. We sort of know this at some level, right? But it's those two things, universal and efficacious. And I think it... There's three verses that we're going to reference, one in Ephesians 2 and then Philippians 2 and Philippians 1, but I think these fit alongside what we're talking about that help us to understand this and how it actually can be encouraging to us. And so the first is Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Um, if you want a bonus verse, you should read Ephesians 2.9 because it goes along with the other things that we're saying. But what this verse says is that we can change. We can overcome because we were created, meaning we were made new creations in Christ. And when we were made new creations, we were made for good works. So we may feel that we're incapable of change. That we are not really going to be able to make it through. That we're not going to be able to persevere. Or that we're stuck. Or that we're not following God the way that we should be. Or that we, but the burden of change according to this verse, doesn't land on us, right? We can rest because we are created by God for good works that are already prepared for us. His sovereignty is at work in us and will lead us to do the things that he has prepared for us. The good works as believers in Christ are coming Right? And I think that's encouraging, that God has prepared good works for me, and he's going to help me get there and give me everything that I need to do that. Right? That's encouraging to me. Then Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Right After we become believers and we step into the kingdom, we continue to work out our salvation to become more like him with fear and trembling. Right, We aren't working for our salvation because that was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. We are working to put to death our sinful desires. That's what we're working towards. And so the power we have to do that is rooted in God who is working in us. Right? It says he is working his will and his work. He is giving us the will. He is giving us the desire to battle our sin and to follow him and to choose him. And when it says his work, he's giving us the strength, the energy the mental process to be able to do this. He's giving us what we need to continue to follow him. There's a, a quote from um, Charles Spurgeon about this, and this is what it says. Um, there's a word in here that's pretty old school, so I had to look it up, so I'm going to give you what that is as well. It says, It gives God pleasure to see you become holy. Depend on it then, since he is pleased with the result. He put forth his own strong hand to bring it about as you, to bring about you as you work, will not work at a peradventure, uh, that means uncertainty, um, but in absolute certainty of success. Meaning when you work out your salvation, when you're following Christ, when you're seeking him because God gives you the will and the work to be able to do it, it is not uncertain. It is secure. Because God promises it to us. If we seek him, if we follow him, that he will encourage us, he will strengthen us, he will give us the desire so that we can become more like him. It is a certainty that you can be more like Christ. Right? 
That sounds a little encouraging to me, right? Because God is sovereignty, our progress towards holiness is a certainty. And then Philippians 1, verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I think this is a great comfort to those who may be struggling or those who may feel like they're off track at this moment, right? Knowing that God, who sovereignly began to work in someone's life, will continue to work in it, right? It doesn't say he who began a good work in you might forget about you might leave you hanging, might not give you what you need. No, it says he will be faithful to complete it. The work in your life will be completed by Christ. It's a promise. It's there. And his promises always come true. Right? It takes away, I think, our temptation to try to do this stuff on ourselves a little bit or to make somebody else do it or to manipulate somebody to get them on track, right? But if you're discouraged, you can have hope. Because isn't God faithful? Isn't he able? Isn't that where Paul's certainty of, in this verse of their sanctification came from? From God, knowing that God, the creator of the universe, who began a good work in you, would complete it. Right? He will complete what is working in you seems like an encouraging statement that God is with me. He will complete what he is doing in me. As we kind of bring all of this together, um, the Lord's Supper actually is a reminder of this as well, right? God promised the Israelites that he would rescue them from slavery in Egypt, and he did, just like he said. He told them the blood of the lamb would save them, and it did. When they put it on their doorposts, they were saved. And God promised that he would send a redeemer who would rescue us from slavery to sin. And he did. He sent Jesus as the sacrificial lamb who would rescue us from our sins. It was his blood that ratified the new covenant. And the interesting thing about the the, the word that he uses for new covenant, or just covenant, when he's talking about this, is it's not the word that we usually think of when we talk about covenant or maybe even contract, right? That it's a two-sided thing, that two parties make an agreement and they both have obligations to fulfill it. And if one party doesn't fulfill their obligation, then the covenant is broken. No, the word that he used here is actually a one-sided covenant. That God, through Christ, will be faithful to redeem us and to rescue us and to save us and to make his work complete in us. And it's all on him. It's one-sided. He does everything. And even if we break our promises and we fall away, or we doubt, or we give in to temptation, or we struggle, he will still be faithful to us, to bring us to know him, to bring us to follow him, to give us all that we need in our desires in our motives, and to strengthen our faith so that we can follow him completely. It's a one-sided thing, him working in our lives. Right? That he will be faithful to redeem us, to rescue us, and he will come again. 
right? Which is the part I kind of referenced at the beginning about kind of the cups. If you look into the history of the Passover, they took, drank four cups, right? And Jesus did this on the third one, kind of stopping there. Um, and the, the one coming after that is the cup of kind of a promising a renewed relationship with God, a vindication, a consummation. And Jesus saying that this part is coming. It's coming in my death for the sacrifice for people's sins so that they can have faith, so that God can open their eyes and give them faith so they can trust and believe in him. And even now, right, we're still waiting for the second half of that consummation, of that vindication when Jesus returns and he makes everything the way it's supposed to be. But until that point, right, he works in us He gives us faith, he gives us strength, he gives us desire so that we can follow him and he is faithful to his promises to complete his work in us. Right? So the Lord's Supper and the New Covenant are a reminder that it isn't about us. Right? As much as we kind of want it to be about us and what we're doing, it's about God and his plan and his promise. And there's nothing outside of his plan. There's nothing that can stop his plan And we can trust, not in ourselves, but in God's sovereign control and the promises that he makes us that we can be holy and that we can be righteous. That he does a work in us. And that enables us to be faithful followers of Christ. You guys pray with me this morning. God, we come before you and we thank you for your word, that even when sometimes we think we know what we're going to see or what you're going to want us to hear from a passage, that you, you show us something different, something deeper, something important. And we, we just come before you and we just first just praise you and thank you for your sovereign control as the sovereign king that, that the, yes, the world may seem chaotic, but somehow in the midst of everything that's happening, your purpose, your plan will go forward. And we can trust in you. We can trust in the promises, especially the ones that you've made to us about our sanctification of becoming more holy, of becoming more like Christ. That you will help us. You will complete the work in us. You will help us to overcome temptation and doubt and struggle and sin so that we can follow you wholeheartedly. So God, I pray that as we, as we pray to you, that we will remember that, that we will ask for your help, that we will ask you for advice, for answers, for strength, because you are the one that knows what's going to happen. You are the one who knows exactly what we need in this moment today. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned because you are with us. You will bring forth your plan, and your plan is for your followers to become more Christ-like. So help us to trust in you. That doesn't mean just sitting on the couch and waiting for you to do something, but we would be active, that we would seek you, and that in that you would work with us to make us more like you. So not just we will be changed, but that others will be changed through us, that you will use us in a way to open the eyes of others to see your greatness and your grace and your mercy and your power so that they will trust in you, They will follow you and that we together can glorify you for all these things that you have done for us of saving us and redeeming us and sanctifying us and eventually glorifying us and making us like you. 
So God, help us to be faithful followers of you and trust in your promises. It's in your name I pray. Amen.